We're going to continue this morning going through the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Uh, let's pray as we, as we come before God, as we listen to the word. Uh, let's pray for his blessing upon this time. Lord God, so many of us come this morning feeling like we are lifeless. Or perhaps listless. Uh, that we are in, in need of being raised up again. Father, we pray that as we come before you with humility and listen to the word that you have, that you would do your work, that you would show us the beauty of Jesus Christ, the one who came for us. We ask that he would be, that he would be more beautiful and more believable to us than when we first came in this morning. I ask that you would form us into the image of Jesus Christ and that we would be not reliant upon ourselves, but that we would grow in grace and in faith and in truth. Do your work in us by your spirit. Use this man preaching with your spirit here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. This is God's word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first amen what must i do to inherit eternal life what must i do to inherit eternal life that's a common question asked by many people Many people from all walks of life. It's asked by religious people. What is the way of salvation? How do I achieve 
uh, that life eternal that exists beyond this world? That's the question that this man came up to Jesus with. But it's also a question that's asked by many non-religious people, at least in a non-traditional sense. But yet those people who believe in some form of afterlife, what do I need to do? How do I climb the ladder to get up to God? How do I be a good person? Or at least how do I be a good enough person? So the question here isn't only what do I need to do? But it's also this, how do I know? How do I know? What can I do to po- in order to point to the fact that, for, for proof that I have eternal life indeed? See, for this man here who comes to Jesus, a man who at least thought that he had upheld all of the works of the law, he still wanted to know what also did he have to do? What did he have to do on top of them in order to inherit eternal life? What would he have to do that would be the proof, that would be the card that he could hold up and say with definitively, aha, this is it. Now I know that I have eternal life. It's asking the question here, though, of what's needed to inherit eternal life. That question also bleeds into the search for assurance. Right? How do I therefore know? How do I therefore know? It opens up the existential question of seeking after a sense of enoughness. How have I, much have I done? Have I done enough? How do I know not only what to do, but how do I know if I've done enough of it? And in Christian theology here, this is what we refer to as justification. Where it means it talks about not only having your offenses removed, not only having your sins taken away, all your blemishes gone crucified on on the cross but though also then having your record hopefully in the black right it's not just that your sins are are wiped away and that your record's clear but it also though there's a requirement to be filled as well how do I know that I'm right with God how do I know that I have the requisite merit to please the holy God and that's the root question of the man who comes to Jesus here What's on his mind as he comes to Jesus is merit and achievement. It starts out right there when he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. Now you called good in this time, or you called God good in this time period, but you didn't call other people good. That's why Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Except we don't have an indication here that this man thought that Jesus was anything more than just some great teacher. And so the implication of this as he comes to him is that he calls Jesus good because he understood or because he related to him based upon what he perceived as Jesus' merit and achievement, not as a son of God, but as a teacher. And it reveals to, to then his own understanding that goodness in his mind is defined by achievement. Goodness in his mind is, 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 is defined by achievement. In other words, he comes to him and says, Jesus, show me your ways. Oh, good teacher, tell me the secret also of being good, as good as you are, so that I too can have a hope of climbing that ladder to eternal life with God. Show me those ways of goodness. And he must have left something out, though. He's thinking he must have left something out because he sincerely believes that he has done all of the commandments of loving your neighbor. 
Jesus says, you know the commandments. And, and he talks then about really what are the, the, the fifth to the tenth, the second part of the Ten Commandments. All right, we have the, the Ten Commandments that are oftentimes divided into the first four, which are directed at love of God, and then the fifth to the tenth, which are directed at love of neighbor. And Jesus tells him, he basically runs through, well, you know the commandments, and he runs through an order of the fifth or of the fifth to the tenth commandments, the second table, loving your neighbor. And so this man says, well, yeah, I've, I've kept all those from my youth. I've done them all. And we can perhaps even assume that maybe he believed the same about loving God because the two are related. How do you love God? Well, you also love God by loving your neighbor. And you can't truly love your neighbor if you don't love God first. Now, is this man deluded? Is he self-deceived? I don't know, but there definitely we can say this, that there is a failure that he has of understanding the law. Because the law is, is, is in a... Uh, the law has a two-dimensional perspective, a 2D perspective, right? In one sense here, it's not us keep yourself from this, but also do this also. Not just uh, do not murder, not just don't kill someone, but it also has the other side too. Preserve life. And all the other applications and ways of that. Not just don't covet, but also be content. But then also, that's not just a two-dimensional understanding of the law. It actually is a three-dimensional understanding because it applies in three dimensions to the whole person. It's a 3D view. It applies to all of us, not our, our thought, our mind, our deed. But see, this man, as he comes to Jesus, he's not only just viewing the law in a two-dimensional sense. He's not even just looking at it in the sense of, well, it's what I've done. But he's all really only looking at it in a one-dimensional sense. I've kept myself from all of those things. It's an overly simplistic way of looking at the law. And so why would he even go, go to the trouble of asking Jesus? Well, he must be missing something, at least in his mind. He's trying to cover his bases. He's looking for something that will push him over the edge, something that he can hold up, something that will then give him the assurance that he's been looking for. What haven't I done yet? What is it that I need to do? This is right here the quest for assurance. What can I look to? What can I hold up as a, ways, as a way of easing my conscience that eternal life is truly indeed mine? And that's something for even gospel-believing people to slip into. Right, the gospel says that it, everything is ours in Jesus Christ. The gospel says that we believe in Jesus Christ who is crucified, who is raised for us, who, are, who is ascended for us, that we don't, do, we don't provide a lick of our own merit, but we simply trust in Jesus Christ and in his renewing grace in us. Right, but what do we say, though, sometimes? Yeah, but I've got to do this too. Yeah, but I need to prove it by this. Yeah, but I want to add this in because there's just something that doesn't seem right. Is, are, is, is that something that's free, really free? Can't I at least have something to offer in my open hands? See, it's the question that we ask as soon as our eyes shift away from the beauty of Jesus and they go back down to our own resumes that we want to hold and we want to present to Jesus. Yeah, but look how good I am. I'm not so bad, right? And that not only stunts your growth spiritually, 
But it also takes all of the joy out of the Christian life. It takes all of the joy out of the Christian life because your relationship to God and a holy God, we have to remember, your relationship with a holy God will change if your source of confidence of coming to him shifts, or shifts and slips from Jesus alone to your own accomplishment. Because then you can only relate to God by your, your works or grace. That's the only ways you can relate to God, by works or grace. And so if you want to come to him with your own accomplishment, that's a sense of work. And if you are coming to him looking for assurance and hope by work, then you know what your view of God is inevitably going to turn into? You know what your relationship will look like? It will be me mechanical. It will be maybe even fearful. It will be cold. But the thing is, if it is by grace, if it is by receiving, if it is by trusting, if it is looking to Jesus, then how will you receive it? It's going to be the opposite. Your relationship with God will be full of joy. It will be full of love because you will have, be having, have been given everything that you need. It won't be a cold relationship. It will be a relationship that is full of warmth and beauty. And that's a helpful diagnostic tool here. How do you view God? Do you view him in these mechanical, lifeless, fearful, cold ways? Or do you look at him with joy and love and warmth? I'm going to guess it, it, it likely corresponds to your basis of confidence that you have. How do you think that this man who came to Jesus, what, what view do you, of God do you think that he had? Well, Jesus directs him to, to God. He directs him to the source of the standard, being God. He says, no one is good except God alone. Which is when he directs him then to the, to the, the commandments, the representation of the good and the holy standard uh, of, of law from God. He says, you know what to do. You know the law. If you want assurance by the law, then just do what it says. But here's the question. Is that what you want? Do you want the endless treadmill of works? You all know the story, the, the, the Greek myth of Sisyphus, who is condemned to roll a giant boulder up a hill for the, top, for the rest of his life, but you know what? He could never actually make it to the top. He kept rolling it up and up and up, and it didn't matter how far he got, he never reached the top of the hill, and it would inevitably slip and roll, and he would have to go back again. See, that's what it is. That's what it is to seek assurance based upon the law. It is the endless upward toil, pushing and groaning, only to have it roll back down and inevitably crush you. And if you've tried that, friends, is that giving you assurance? Are you finding the way of inheriting eternal life? What is that doing for your view of God? Are you finding satisfaction in your own merits? How far along are you in your sense of feeling enough. See, what we have here is a man who's looking for self-justifying assurance. Now, here's the thing. How does Jesus, throughout the Gospels, normally treat these sorts of people? These people with these almost pharisaical hearts. Condemnation, right? You foolish. You know you can't do it. But what strikes me as so interesting here, did you note here, how does Jesus treat this man? Before he talked to him here, what's it say in verse 21? He loved him. He loved him. He loved him in his delusional views of keeping the law. 
in his searching for assurance and peace before God, and even in his inevitably mechanical and joyless relationship with God, relating to him only by what he had done, Jesus loved him. He loves real people who are trying to find their way into knowing that they have salvation and life and peace with God. Which is why he speaks to this man out of love and he rattles his foundations. Because without doing that, is it really love? I mean, if your faulty foundations are not shaken, then the monument of your own merits that you are building will eventually collapse. It cannot bear the weight. It will collapse and you will topple down with it and you will be left amid the rubble wondering what happened. But if your faulty foundations are shaken, then the cracks will be exposed and they're ripe for being restored and for everything to be rebuilt then upon the grace of Christ. That's what Jesus does here. He talks to this man then and he tells him three things. The first thing that he tells him to shake his foundations here is tells him to let go of his idols. Let go of your idols. He says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Now, the problem with that is that's difficult for most people anyways, isn't it? But it's also especially difficult because this man was wealthy. It says in verse 22 that he had great possessions. Now, Jesus had asked him about the second table of the Ten Commandments, loving of neighbor. But what about the, the first table? Love for God. And what about a, a three-dimensional love of God? A love of God that goes all the way down to the heart. Right? What's the very first commandment? You will have no other gods beside me. And Jesus says, lay it all aside. Lay everything there you've got, all your possessions, lay it all aside. And he exposes this man's idols. Why can't he give them up? Because he loves them too much. Because they're so worthwhile and valuable to him. His riches are what had control over his heart. It wasn't God. The two were in competition with each other. And God says, I'm not going to have that. The first commandment, you will not just have any other gods before me. You will have no gods beside me. And Jesus tells, us to, tells him to respond with all of who you are. He says, put it aside. Have the loves of your heart reoriented. And he says, follow me. And it's painful for this man. He walks away saddened. He walks away exceedingly sorrowful with this dark cloud. Why do you think he was so sad? Because he knew he couldn't give them up? Because what really controlled his heart was revealed? Maybe because he finally realized that he wasn't actually good enough, that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. Maybe it was some of both. But having our idols exposed is painful, though, for these reasons, isn't it? We realize that we didn't love God as much as we thought we did. We begin to see again that the controlling principle over our hearts and our lives wasn't God. But don't forget, though, Jesus loved this man. Jesus walked him to the open door. He exposed the idols in his heart, as painful as it was for him, but it was because he loved him. Sometimes it's painful in other ways. Sometimes God uses the pain of broken relationships, of our busted egos, of physical pain sometimes, of humiliation, of our sorrows. But he shows us how much that we have propped those things up as idols and have we, we've put them 
uh, on the high places, on the altars of our lives. But Jesus, though, uses those here as acts of love to get us to see the value of something better. He exposes them so that we will actually see the value of himself. He leads us again back to that, at that open door, and he's not, con- not condemning here, but he's leading him back to himself. See, when we have those idols exposed, those idols of our hearts exposed, what we will do is we will either see them for what they are, and we will let go of them, or we will clench our hands tighter. But Jesus does this, though, out of love, to grasp hold of something better, which is himself. Tells us to follow him. It's entering into a new life. Taking hold of something better. Surrendering the superficial loves of your heart. And then taking hold of a new life. A life of devotion devoid of any of our own accomplishments. See what is it though that will hold you? What is it that will comfort you? What is it that will give you peace and solace in the midst of despair, in affliction, as you face the end, as you have everything pulled away from you? Will those idols satisfy you in those times? What comfort or what assurance will those truly give to you? Or will those simply just end up being revealed to be worthless for pinning your life upon See, it's love when Jesus exposes them. Jesus shows us something better. He shows us himself. But the second thing that he says here then is he challenges the assurances of merit. He challenges the assurances of merit. And he starts talking to the the, the disciples here. He said, it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom. It is difficult for the wealthy, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult is it? Well, think of a camel... And think of a needle. Take that camel, shove it through the eye of the needle. It's impossible. It shocks the disciples. There's this tradition that they had, uh, or there was a a strain of Jewish teaching, or one of the traditions that taught that if you were good, if you were a righteous person, then you could expect to be wealthy. You could expect to be favored by God. You could expect to be blessed. Call it some sort of proto-prosperity gospel. But in other words, wealth came by God... Because of their good works. That was what was taught. So we're not just talking about a wealthy man. What? A wealthy man can't be saved? No. A good man. And there were certainly here certain instances that we have in, in the Old Testament where, where, where blessing is a sign uh, or a, that, that uh, a blessing is, is a sign of, or blessing from God is a sign of, of, of righteousness there. But we also though have to think about some of the Psalms that cry out in laments, that why is it that the evil, why is it that the wicked are the ones who are rich and wealthy and comfortable right now? Or what about the prophets, the, the, the people who were sent by God, the ones who were sometimes the only righteous ones in Israel at that time? Why is it that they were harassed and ridiculed and persecuted? So Jesus, or the, the disciples then, those say in verse 26, well, with this understanding here, in their minds, that wealthy means good, well, then who can be saved? Right, if honest, on honest question there, they're thinking, well, if not the rich people by their merit, by their achievement, then who, who can be saved? Shouldn't the wealthy have evidence of their assurance? And their categories of, of the disciples here, their categories are totally upended. They are obliterated. But the thing is, this isn't only limited to wealth. 
It's an overarching principle in that whatever competes with the, with the affections of our heart, it's more than just riches. However, though, wealth does have a particular way of doing so, doesn't it? Right? Wealth oftentimes is a, the, the pathway for our own security and ease and comfort and power. And it grips the heart. It allows us to point to something tangible to prove our value and worth, isn't it? I'm rich because of my achievements. I've been given wealth here because of what I've done. I mean, what better way than wealth to display our achievement? But the thing is, this isn't only those for, for who are rich. It's not just for the rich. Plenty of people who are poor also idolize wealth, right? People who are dreaming and obsessing about becoming rich and powerful. Again, Jesus says how difficult it is. How difficult it is. How can anyone get in? Right? They of all people should be able to get in. Who better than a rich person blessed by God because of their own goodness, because of the things that they've done? But remember what Jesus says, who is good except for God alone? Can anyone claim blessing and, and, and favor by merit? No. No one can except for one person, except for Jesus. See, it takes not only a person who kept themselves from breaking the law, but also a person who responded positively to the law, who did everything, who fulfilled it in that three-dimensional sense, not only doing what it required, but keeping themselves from what it, what it forbade, and doing it all in thought, mind, and deed, and never once slipping up. It took someone who would keep the, all of the, the commandments, not just the fifth through the tenth, but also the first through the fourth, and it would take God himself. It would take the Son of God who came and united himself to human nature, the person of Jesus Christ. There we have the goodness of God incarnate. A man who wasn't blessed outwardly with riches, but he was a man who cast aside his heavenly glory to be born into a blue-collar family. And the merit and achievement that you need then to inherit eternal life from God is from him. Right? Not if, yeah, he alone is good. See, the law, it's, or it's, none of this is found in what you do. It needs to come from another. Goodness, achievement, righteousness needs to come from another. It needs to come from Jesus. Because what the law does, and Jesus uses it here for this man, the law shows us our idols. And it is painful, isn't it? Right? It is the hammer of God which comes down and shatters our egos. But it also, though, at the same time, diverts our gaze away from ourselves. And it leads our eyes to desire it to come from somewhere else. It shows us actual true righteousness that's found in Jesus. See, with man, nothing's, with, with man there, what's Jesus say? He says, with man it's impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible, he says. What's impossible for us is possible with God. It is the only way that it can happen. See, if it's a matter of the heart loosening its grip upon our idols and our merits, then what does it take to actually have us, have us unclench our fists? It takes a renewal of our heart. It takes God working in us by his spirit to point our eyes 
to, or to, 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 show, to give us sight to our eyes of what our idols really are, to give us sight and to look away from ourselves and to see instead the perfection of Jesus and to drop whatever that we have and grasping him instead and we have to see him as better and that's what God does. God illumines the eyes of our heart so that we will see Jesus as more beautiful than the, everything else that we want to hold to. All of our sense of merit and achievement all of our ideas of self-worth, all of those things we see as worthless, as particularly in relation to the perfection of Jesus Christ. And at that point, then, we will drop what we have and we grasp hold of him. We have to go see him as better. And it must come down to the Spirit of God who's at work in us to see the worthlessness of our own merit, but also the beauty of Jesus Christ and the limitless riches that are in Christ. And the third thing that Jesus then says is that he gives everything to those who give up everything. He gives up everything to those who give up everything. And he talks to Peter and, and, and the, the, the disciples then, those who gave up everything to follow after him. Right? They, like others, gave up their houses. Um, you know, Peter had a mother-in-law. It means Peter was married. Peter had a house there too. They left behind families. James and John left behind their dad in the boat. That means they also gave up occupations and livelihoods. They gave up their fishing businesses. Uh, they left behind also associated riches with them. Matthew, the tax collector, would have been a wealthy man, though that wealth gained in ways that were less than savory. So you give up everything, but Jesus says, though, there's gaining so much more. He says, what you give up will be returned to you in a hundredfold. Gaining family, a hundredfold. Gaining houses and lands, one hundredfold. So what's he talking about, though? Houses, family, etc. All these things, though, that will be returned here, that, that will be, be given to you in ways that actually transcend earthly bonds. Because you get what Jesus has. You get not only his merit and his achievements, you get his life, the life that he earned. And it means also that you get his family as well. A spiritual family. A family that is a hundredfold than your own earthly family. Houses, one hundredfold. You know how? Because there's a shared homes of spiritual family. But no, though here, Jesus repeats everything again here that he says about leaving behind uh, mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and everything. He repeats everything, but he leaves one thing out, though. What is it? He leaves out fathers. It's the one thing left out. Why? Why does he leave that out? Because you only have one father, capital F, father. A father shared by brothers and sisters. A father shared by Jesus, the son. A father who gives everything to his children who follow after him. But here's the thing, though. You don't earn your way into a family, do you? Your family is outside of your control. You didn't choose your family. You came into your family either by birth or by a birthright given, by adoption. And that includes your father, right? You didn't, you're, you're, you didn't get your father by, by any sort of merit or achievement. But the, same, but, but the thing is, you have a father, God the Father, in the same way. You have him by new birth. You have him by birthright given. And that comes through faith. None of it's dependent upon your merit. You aren't made a daughter. You aren't made a son by achieving a certain goodness quotient. 
Because if you have the merit of the son, then you are already a son or daughter and you are loved and cared for in the same way. See, the cross of Jesus Christ takes away all of our failures, all of of our offenses that separate us from God the Father. And the achievement, though, of Jesus Christ then means that you will never be cast away, that he has perfect pleasure and delight in you if you are looking to him. In fact, even an earthly, even a shadow of an earthly father, though, will, will still accept and care for his kids regardless of their merits. Right, kids, do your parents give you dinner based upon how good you were that day? Right, do you have to sleep outside if you didn't do all of your chores? I hope not. But why would God the Father be any different? Inheriting eternal life comes through having the Father, and having the Father means following Jesus, the Son. Is there something within you that's trying to find your sense of enoughness this morning? Trying to find your sense of assurance? Think, maybe you're thinking this morning, what must I do? Well, see, it's not a law for you to rely on. It's a Jesus to rely on. It's not a law for you to follow. It's a Jesus to follow. Put aside your idols, put away your assumption of merit, and look to Jesus, because in him you will receive everything lasting and eternal. You'll find life. And as we come now to the the table very shortly, Jesus reminds us in different ways, not just hearing, but also by what we can taste and touch and smell and see. That Jesus reminds us that in him alone is all of your sufficiency. That he was crucified for failures and offenses of sinners. Just like you and just like me. And that our only hope is being covered by his merit. And we we come here and we receive. We receive because that's what faith is. It's receiving with open, outstretched arms and saying, I've got nothing. And we have the promise of life as we come here and as we eat with him right now. Jesus is reminding us that it's because of what I've done, not because of what you do, which is why you're loved and accepted. And that will bleed into the future as well. That, there is, that how will I inherit eternal life? How will you inherit eternal life? By the promise of Jesus, which continues to last, that his merit for you, that his cross for you will never fail. Let's pray. Lord God, when we are honest with ourselves, we may say it, but when we are truly honest, our best works get us nowhere. And it's easy to just say that in cliche ways, in ways that, uh, that speak about grace, in ways that just roll off the lips. But Lord, we want to feel that in our hearts, though. So often we want to come before you with our own achievements, our own merits, and so many times we do so thinking that that's the way that we'll be assured. But God, break our idols. Show us what they are and smash them so that we will maybe be left with, no- so we will be left with nothing and come to you simply with open hands. Lord, let us do so. Remind us of that as we come to the table here once more. In Jesus' name, amen.